You were listening to the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. Red Hill Church is a gospel-centered, missional church in the Edwardsville, Glen Carbon community of the St. Louis Metro East. We exist to glorify God and make disciples by sharing the gospel and sharing our lives. My name is Brooke Schomburg, and I'm going to be reading out loud for us today. We are in Malachi chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 10 and read through verse 16. So I'll give you a second to turn there or scroll there. Malachi chapter 2, starting in verse 10. It says, don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our ancestors? Judah has acted treacherously, and a detestable act has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord God cut off the tents of Jacob, the man who does this, whoever he may be, even if he presents an offering to the Lord of armies. This is another thing you do. You are covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. And you ask why? Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't God make them one and give them a portion of spirit? What is the one seeking? Godly offspring. So watch yourselves carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of armies. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Brooke. That was excellent. I like a, I like a little change up sometimes in the worship. Thank you guys for leading us so well. I was uh, like singing with the saints in glory. I just couldn't help but think about like family members who are already there, you know, like to be able to join them this morning. It's it really a treat. And I look forward to knowing them fully and being known by them fully. It's, that's part of the joy of salvation. Um, just before we dive into the text today, just I just want to say a word about the word today and <clears throat> a word about the sermon today. Because uh, we're addressing in Malachi, Malachi is really merciless to preachers today. Like he's like, I, like what, what, are, what are the hot button issues of the day? Let's, let's talk about money. Let's talk about power dynamics. Let's talk about a biblical sexual ethic. And let's not pull any punches whatsoever at all. Let's just come straight with it and let the punches and chips and uh, results fall wherever they may. And so I, I want to tell you today, as I am approaching this text, I'm approaching it hopefully with clarity. I, I don't want there to be any confusion about how God feels about a sexual ethic. I don't want there to be any confusion about what God has to say about marriage and about love and about human flourishing. I also, uh, along with clarity, because we're fallen, you know, I, I've heard it said that uh, preaching is just one blind beggar telling another blind beggar where they can find food. Um, in other words, I, I want to speak with compassion 
understanding that my struggle isn't your struggle, my sin isn't your sin, but the, the, the ground at the cross is all level. So we all approach it as sinners in need of mercy, in need of abundant mercy and uh, abundant grace. And uh, that I'm approaching the text today with humility. And, and I hope that you'll listen with humility and that I'll also both preach and listen with humility and say that we're responsible to be under the authority of God and under the authority of his word. And uh, much as we might like to in certain ways and places, much as we might like to alter it, we don't have that authority. And that is a huge part of the problem in Malachi that's being addressed, is that the people wanted to do what they wanted to do. And they wanted God not just to say, that's okay, but they wanted God to say, that's good. And that God would bless something that he had said was not good. And God's not going to do that. We're not going to do that, but we do want to walk in with humility to be able to say we can listen this morning. And I invite you more than you listen to me to listen to both the word and the Holy Spirit because I am neither of those things. And what I'm going to try to do today is offer to you humbly how I understand God's word and to say humbly anyone who would like to discuss it further, my door is open and, and all I want to do is say, let's open this together and let's learn what God wants so, so we can keep seeking and searching together without fear, knowing that God loves us, that God wants the best for us. And I also want to say that we're approaching with clarity, with compassion, with humility, but also with hope, with gospel hope. Uh, because for every one of us, there is a part of life that there, there's an inbuilt struggle that has existed since sin entered the world. Since the fall of mankind, there's a struggle. My struggle is not your struggle, and your struggle is not my struggle, and you're never going to know the full extent of my struggle, and I'm never going to know the full extent of your struggle, but I do know this about both of our struggles, that there will come a day when he'll wipe every tear from our eyes, and he'll take us to a place where there's no more death, where there's no more darkness, where there's no more sickness, and where there's no more sadness. In other words, where there's no more struggle. To take us to a place and put us in a place and make us a people who no longer struggle with whatever it is that we're struggling with today. So whatever it is that you're bringing in, if it's relevant to the text today, or if it's something that is absolutely nothing to do with today's text, you can approach your struggle with hope whatever that particular struggle is, and you can approach that struggle in community because the ground is level at the foot of the cross and what the enemy wants to say to you over and over and over again is, if anybody knows what you're struggling with, then you will be shunned and shut out from community. And ironically, the solution to this that is pressed upon us is to shut ourselves out from community. So the consequence of sharing, we are told by our shame, is that you will have no community. But the consequence of our silence and our solitude and struggle is that we have no community. And uh, I, as long as I am a pastor here, I will fight for the right for you to be able to struggle. For you to be able to doubt and question and, and struggle and say, I'm, I'm really having a hard time submitting my life to Jesus in this area. 
It's important that we do that together. It's important that we carry one another's burdens. Paul told the church in Galatia that that's how you fulfill the law of Jesus Christ, by carrying other people's burdens. And inherent in that equation is our willingness to share our loads with other people, to share the burdens with other people. So that's how we're going to approach it today, hopefully. And that's how I'm going to try to approach it. And and we're going to ask God again to bless the preaching of his word. Not to bless me, the preacher, but to bless, uh, to bless the preaching of the word and all of us together, myself especially, and included as listeners. So we just bow with me again? I'm going to ask God to bless his word and the preaching of it, and then we'll dive into the text. God, we love you because you love us. We, we worship you because you're worthy. We struggle because there's sin in the world and there's sin inside of us. And uh, life sometimes is unbearably difficult. The standard of holiness seems unbearably difficult. And we need, um, we need the truth about our situation. Because the truth about our situation will tell us that um, we cannot fix ourselves and we are broken. But the truth about our situation will also tell us that there is more than enough mercy. There is more than enough grace. There's more than enough second chances. There's more than enough new life. And there's more than enough reason to believe that you're still good, that you still love us, that you will be with us. And there is more than enough reason to understand and to be firmly convinced that this life is not all that there is. So we can hold on to hope. Would you bless the preaching of your word and help us to have soft and tender hearts to the leading and the speaking of your spirit? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, Malachi, again, as a reminder, is speaking to post-exilic. They had come out of Babylonian exile, uh, post-exilic Israel. It's Judah. It's a tiny little place, about 200,000 people, about 140 square miles. It's, It's not a big territory. They have no standing army. They've come back and their expectation is peace and abundance and prosperity and good things and everything's going to be great and flowers and roses and they come back and it's none of those things. It's difficulty and it's hardship and part of the problem, in fact, the main problem it seems is that they've walked away from the covenant that they had with God. So they've walked outside of the covenant blessings but they still want the covenant blessings. They've walked away from the faithful uh, love of God but they still want all of the favor of God. And, and God is going to lay out all throughout this book the specific ways that they violated the covenant, that they violated what God said, you must do these things. And so uh, we get to chapter 2 and verse 10, and we're dealing with a biblical sexual ethics. Specifically, we're dealing with marriage and marital faithfulness. And, and he begins by illustrating that there is a familial relationship and there is a divine order to things. He says, don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Why do we act treacherously? We have one father, so we're under this authority, and we have one creator who designed all of us and everything. Why do we act treacherously? Why, uh, treach- to act treacherously means to betray a confidence or a trust. It's a betrayal of something. So why would you betray your own family, especially in front of your father? Listen, I I want you to know that the covenant of marriage is built into creation. God as our father 
is it's woven into the fabric of the universe that he created us and then he created a covenant in order to have a familial relationship with us. I am a very proud dad. Regularly have to have new buttons sewn onto my shirts because I am bursting with pride over my children. I, I love my boys. They're incredible men and I love my daughter. It's one thing to be a boy dad. It's a whole other world to be a girl dad. If you mess with my boys, you're taking your life in your own hands. One of my sons is a soldier who has been trained to kill people. And the other of my sons has dedicated his life to hand-to-hand -hand combat in the form of wrestling. And he spends way too much time in the gym. But if you mess with my girl, you're not taking your life in your hands. You're taking your life and putting it in my hands. Just understand, I will kill you if you mess with my girl. I can vividly remember the difference, like when my boys were born, it was like rub dirt on them. Everybody touch them. Put your fingers in their mouth. See if you can make them sick. They got to get tough. They got to be men. When, when I took my son Caleb to his first day of kindergarten, my wife's mother, my mother-in-law, she was sick and she was with us. And Sarah had to stay with her. And she's like, you got, you got to take Caleb to his first day of kindergarten. And I was like, no problem. I get in car line. I pull up in the car line. It's the place where he gets out. He gets out. Off he goes to kindergarten for the first day of school. I get back, and Sarah's like, how'd it go? I'm like, I mean, how's it supposed to go? I pull up the car line. I open the door. He got out. He went to school. She's like, you didn't walk him to class? I'm like, he's six years old. He's a man. He doesn't need me to hold his hand and walk him to class. There are teachers there. It's time for him to grow up and be a man. When my daughter was born, it was like, if you touch her, I'll kill you. I don't care. Like, grandma, grandpa, doesn't matter. I don't care. You, nobody touches her. I will kill all of you. I'll burn the world to the ground. I don't care, right? I don't care. I raised my boys saying that the most important thing is that you take care of the girls, right? That, like, we're defenders. We're, like, there's something inside of me that rises up at the thought of someone messing with my family, don't we all have one father? Don't we understand that when we violate what God has set out for us and how we are supposed to treat other people, you're messing with his son. You're messing with his daughter. We have one father. There's this familial relationship. Would you abandon and violate a covenant that was designed by your creator that was designed, by the way, to give you life, to give you peace, to give you safety, to give you connection and community, and to allow you to live in the fog. And some of you haven't been here for the whole series. You're like, live in the fog? Like, hi, Phoebe. You're like, you're talking about the fog of fall that just exists all the time? No, I'm talking about the favor of God. I'm just living in the fog, baby, just living in the fog. When somebody's like, how's your day? You just tell them, I'm living in the fog. They'll be like, what are you talking about? The favor of God. I'm just living in the fog. Here's what we want. We want to do whatever we want, and we want God to say, it's fine for you to do that. I'll endorse it. I'll approve of it. I'll bless you in spite of it, because after all, you're God, not me. You get to decide what's right and wrong, not me. 
You get to pick any kind of life and any way of living that you want. And my responsibility as God is just to tell you that you're the shiny penny and everything is going to be okay because you, as a fallen, finite, limited, and if it's me, pretty dumb creature, probably know best. You probably know what you ought to be doing. Right? No. Listen, I, I don't, I'm still not sure I have the whole internet. I don't know if my phone's all the way unlocked. I, my, my best friend, Rusty, does not want me to have knives. He's like, you shouldn't have knives. You just, you're going to hurt yourself. Something bad is going to happen. The point of this book is God saying, I am God. You are not God. If you pretend to be God, you're going to invite pain into your life. Haven't you been able to prove to yourself? Haven't you proven to your own self that you don't know how to make you happy? Haven't you, like, <clears throat> haven't you lived long enough to understand that when you just give yourself what you want, you become miserable? If you have not yet understood that, I invite you to go to a Mexican restaurant for lunch today. Because you know what you will do? You will eat so many chips and salsa that your food will come and you will be like, well, I am not hungry anymore. And then you know what you will do? You will go, but it's Mexican food and it's really good. So I will eat it and then you will eat it and then you will finish and you will go, why do I do this to myself every time I go to a Mexican restaurant? I think Raiden tricked me. Why did he tell me to go to a Mexican restaurant? To demonstrate to you in a simple and stupid way that we don't know how to make ourselves happy. We know how to make ourselves miserable. The fastest way to ruin a child, like if you're you know, young parents in the room, if you want to ruin your kids, just give them everything they want. In fact, not just give them everything they want, but tell them that all their desires are good. And that if they follow those desires, they will find a life filled with purpose and meaning and joy. They will be healthy, physically healthy, They'll be mentally healthy. They'll be emotionally healthy. They'll be financially healthy. They'll be strong. They will discover independence, purpose, value, significance, and joy if they just get everything they want and the whole world tells them it's good. It's good. Just follow your heart. This is the wisdom of the world. But Malachi is trying to make a point and God is trying to make a point. I am your father and I am your creator. In other words, I not only have a designed purpose for all things including you, but I have a significant relational interest in you actually thriving. In you experiencing the fullness of joy. All that God has for us. It's not just a passing interest to him. He's deeply invested in our flourishing. Despite the fallenness of all of our parents, despite the brokenness of all family relationships, built into every sane human parent is a deep desire that their kids would flourish. 
that they would excel, that they would have a wonderful life, a faith-filled, a joy-filled life, a purpose-filled life, and that they would absolutely blossom and flourish in all that God has for them. Don't we have one Father? Don't we have one Creator? So why are we acting treacherously? And then he goes on to explain how we've acted treacherously. He says, Judah has acted treacherously, and a detestable act has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. He's profaned the Lord's sanctuary. He's despised it and treated it as if it was no big deal. But the sanctuary of the Lord was a holy place. It was where his spirit met with people. It was where his presence dwelt. And how did they profane it? They profaned it by marrying the daughters of a foreign god. This was a perpetual problem for Israel in the Old Testament. Over and over and over again, here's what we see happen. We have Israelites marrying the daughters of the God whom they both serve. And then the men saying, you know what? That lady over there is really beautiful. I'm going to divorce this wife and I'm going to take this other wife because she's really beautiful. But that wife worshipped a different God and she brought idolatry into the home. And Satan knows that the fastest way to destroy a society is to bring decay to the home. To just absolutely bring rot and decay into the home. There are all kinds of problems in society today. There are problems that exist in our own community today. Can I tell you that bullying is not going to be solved through policies in our school district. It's not going to be solved by proactive teachers. It's not going to be solved by good administrators. It's going to be solved by a revolution of the human heart and a transformation of the family by the love mercy and truth of the gospel the hope of the world is found in the gospel the foundational unit of society is the family if you are single that doesn't make you less than not everyone is supposed to get married and in fact the apostle paul makes a strong case that in terms of gospel utility in terms of kingdom value single people have an advantage over married people Because they don't have to worry about the concerns of a spouse or of children. They can dedicate themselves fully to the work of the Lord. And those of you who are single in the room, you ought to be fully committed to investing yourself in the work of the kingdom. As should those of us who are married and have families. All that to say that it begins inside of the home. Whether that's one people, two people, or a dozen people, or more. It begins there with us saying as a family, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Some examples from the Old Testament. For those of you looking for some references to look up later, you can come and find me. Exodus 12, 38, Leviticus 24, 10, Numbers 11, 4, Numbers 25, Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 23 through 31. And it's still a critical issue in the New Testament when Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Verses 14 through 18. Let me find that one for you because I want to read that one. Paul writes to the church in Corinth. And you're like, he writes about people bringing idolatry into the home. He writes about being unequally yoked and the consequences of that. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. 
He says, don't become partners with those who do not believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell and walk among them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore... Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing, and I will welcome you, and I'll be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Inside of the history of our own church, inside the history of my ministry, I have observed time after time after time after time where a young person will begin dating someone who does not know the Lord and does not love the Lord. And I don't know if they're thinking that it's missionary dating or that that dating isn't actually going somewhere. And they're cautioned. Listen, that doesn't work over the long haul. It just doesn't work because you have differing priorities because you've given your life to Jesus and it's the same result over and over and over again. And, I, and I've watched it happen over and over and over again. And those of you who are single, I'm begging you to have faith, to be patient and to trust the Lord. If, if you're losing faith and losing hope, to call on some friends to pray with you and to pray for you, to walk with you in that feeling of it's never going to happen for me. Those of you who are single and want to be married, the most important aspect of marriage, the most critical component, the the most vital ingredient is devotion and love for God. If you are missing that, it's going to be really, really difficult to make it work over the long haul. You know why? Because we forgive as we have been forgiven. And someday you're going to stand at the front of a church or out in a field or in a casino or at a hotel or a department store or a home or somewhere, and you're going to make vows. You're going to make, not vowels, vows. Sound like I said vowels. I was like, well, A-E-I-O-U. And then you like just, you get to leave. You're married now. You're going to make vows. You're going to stand before God and these witnesses And you're going to make these covenantal vows that it will take you not even your honeymoon to break. So how do you make it last? Sarah and I have been married 22 and a half years. How do we make it last? The gospel. You make it last through a commitment to God first and your spouse second. The marriage vows being made not to one another, but to God who's unchanging. You know why? Sarah's changed since I married her, and I've changed since she married me, and I struggle, and I doubt, and I offend. The issue wasn't nationality. Passages like this were used for a long time to say that interracial marriage was sinful, which is, by the way, a lie forged in the pit of hell. That's a lie. That's not the issue at hand. And one of the ways that we know that is when you look at the lineage of Jesus, there are foreigners in it. All right, I mean, that's pretty easy to prove false. The issue at hand is an issue of worship. It's an issue of worship. And if you invite into the intimacy of your own life the worship of other gods, you are inviting yourself into the abandonment of the covenant. 
As a youth pastor, I said it a million times, it's a rephrasing of what uh, Paul told the church in Corinth when he said that bad company corrupts good morals, is to say, if you show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Show me your friends, I'll show you your future. We don't get to change the covenant. We are not the authors of the covenant. We're not the creators of the covenant. We're not the sustainers of the covenant. We don't get to alter the terms of the covenant. This is the issue at hand for Israel. This is the issue at hand for us. It doesn't change based on sexual attraction. It doesn't change based on sexual orientation. It doesn't change based on loss of affection. Now, I want to say something, and I want to be absolutely clear. There are good reasons for divorce. There are biblical grounds for divorce. Anyone who's in a home where you are being abused, you need to get out of that home. You don't need to immediately divorce somebody, but you need to get out of that home. You need to come find me or Josh or another person that you trust who will help you. Don't stay in that environment. God does not want you to stay in a place and keep getting abused over and over and over again. The root of our problem is not sexual sin. The root of our problem is rebellion. The root of our problem is that we want what we want and we want it to be fine. We want it to be okay. We want it to be good. Rebelling against a father who loved us, loves us, excuse me, and a creator who designed us, who established a covenant with us that he might be able to stay close to us and pour out blessings upon us. The biblical sexual ethic stands in stark contrast to the world's sexual ethic. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you can get one taste of it. Verses 1 through 8. Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica says, Additionally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received instruction from us on how you should live, And please God, as you're doing, do this even more. For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is God's will, your sanctification. That you keep away from sexual immorality. That each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. This means... One must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses as we also previously told and warned you. For God has not called us to impurity but to live in holiness. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. It's important for us to know, too, that God's not trying to keep something wonderful from us. He's not trying to say, I'm going to make life worse and more difficult and painful. And that's why I gave you this command. So that you could just be miserable and be a prude and just forever just be left out of everything good. That is not at all what it's about. What it's about is human flourishing. 
What the world does with sex is the world does this one small perversion of it and it manifests in a million different ways. And the small perversion of it is that sex exists for your own pleasure. And that is absolutely false. It's designed for someone else. Like all things in this life, it's designed for us to give ourselves away for the benefit of another. If you're struggling with this in your marriage, I encourage you to take this perspective and say, I want this to be about your joy. I want this to be about your flourishing. I want this to be about you feeling all that God designed you to feel, enjoying all that God has for you to enjoy. This is about you. That's the pathway to human flourishing is by humbling ourselves, dying to ourselves, giving ourselves away that others might live, have joy, have purpose. After all, that's what the guy that we follow did for us. He gave himself away. He emptied himself. He became nothing. This is what God has designed for human sexuality. And he said the best way, the safest way, the only way to really be able to experience it is in the context of a marriage. And woven into creation is that marriage is between a man and a woman. And I want to be compassionate and say, I understand what temptation feels like. Not your temptation, but I understand what temptation feels like. I understand what the draw away from that feels like. I understand what the allure to other feels like. And I also understand that that path has never led anywhere where they were overflowing with joy, where they were experiencing abundant peace, where their life was just so full and free and fun that they were saying, I wish everyone could experience what I am experiencing. That path ends the same way that Solomon ended, where he's like, there's no meaning, there's no purpose, there's nothing good. So you might as well just stuff yourself and get drunk because we're all gonna die. The end of me seeking my own pleasure is me finding all of life's misery. The end of me giving myself for the purpose of others experiencing life and others experiencing pleasure and others experiencing joy is where all of the abundance is found. It's where all of the goodness is found. It's where all the joy is found. Malachi, well, the Lord, he says... He's going to be cut off even if he presents an offering, even if he comes in and is like, look, Lord, I have this great thing for you. I'm very sincere in my love for you. Cut off. Why? Because sincerity of offering and sincerity of intent doesn't change the rules of the game. I was once playing golf, and I am very, like, let's say, very precise and not detail-oriented. And you're like, well, those two things are a contradiction. 
I have a perfect example of this. I'm playing golf on a beautiful day. Remember what those used to be like? <laughs> right? <clears throat> and I had read somewhere that a single blade of grass between your golf ball and the club can cause a shot to deviate as much as 10 yards. And so... The ball is sitting in the fairway, miraculously, after a few kicks. I reach down. Actually, I just hit a good drive. Who, who knew? And I, I pluck this one blade of grass off of my golf ball because I don't want the shot to deviate. And I'm looking at the pen. I'm looking at the green, and I'm like, seven iron. And I, I pull that seven iron, bang, smack it. And I'm, I'm saying, like, there's a phrase in golf, painting the stick. That's when the stick is standing up and your ball is just tracking right down the line of it. And I was painting the stick. And I was like, just get in the hole. Just get in. It didn't go in, but it nestled up real good and tight. And I'm I'm standing there as if ESPN is watching, holding it and then spinning the club and dropping it down like it's a sword, you know, and sheathing it. And I'm just just like standing back like, (laughs) amazing. And my buddy that I'm playing with, he's like, that was a great shot. I was like, thanks, man. He goes, to the wrong green. I had sincerity of desire, sincerity of intent, sincerity of effort. I executed it flawlessly, but it didn't matter because I hit it to the wrong green. And God is like, you can bring in the offering that I prescribed, but you're still going to be cut off because you didn't do the thing I told you to do. You know why? Because your offerings don't purchase God's favor. In other words, you can't come in here and raise your hands and expect that to disqualify a week of sin. You can't come in here and donate money and expect that to disqualify a week of sin. You can still raise your hands. You can still give money. But if your life is filled with sin and you don't take the steps that God has prescribed for dealing with sin... There's not something you can do, something that you can present, which will bring you back into the covenant. And God says, not just that, but here's another thing you do. I mean, this is Malachi. It's like God just grabbing a hold of Israel and me, maybe you too, throwing them into the corner of the ring and then just pummeling with body shot after body shot. And just when you think it's over, he starts in with the uppercuts. He's like, here's another thing you do. You're covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. The Israelites were outwardly like pleading with God, show us favor, please, There's such deep emotion involved in what they're doing. Such outward expressions of sincerity. And they want that to make it okay. The problem is, is that God takes it as a double insult. By the way, as do you and as do I. Because if someone betrays you and then comes to you with a gift without saying, I'm sorry that I betrayed you, we despise the gift. And if they continue in the betrayal, but come to us with tears and say, I just really miss your friendship. I just really want to be friends with you again. You know how you feel about it. You feel the same way I feel about it. There I am, a junior in high school. 
It's a week before the prom. I've got a girlfriend. She's not a Christian. So, you know, preach to yourself a little bit, preacher. Yeah, been there. Yeah. She calls me. We're having a phone conversation. Everything's great. She says, I'm breaking up with you. And I'm like, well, that's not great. It's a week before the prom. She's like, yeah, I'm not going to prom with you. Well, it turns out that she's going to the prom with one of my best friends because they had been making out. They're both lost. And so they're just making out, and everything's fine for them, and it's great. And then, because he's an idiot, and so she, it doesn't work out in the long run. She calls me back, and she's like, yeah, I want to get back together with you. And uh, oh, I just, I'm sure some of you have heard this line. Some of us have used this line, including myself. I just, I just really miss our friendship. I just really miss our friendship. I just want to be friends. And, and you probably are like me. And I said, if you want a friend, get a dog. <laughs> because when you cover the Lord's altar with tears, but there's no change in your heart, the Lord is like, what I call that is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Hypocrite is a Greek word. It's a word for the actors on stage who would wear masks. Presenting themselves as one thing when in fact they were another thing. Cry all you want to, God is saying. I'm not looking for your tears. I'm not looking for your offerings. I'm not moved by these things. What does God want from us? A, a broken and contrite spirit, the Lord will in no means cast out. A broken heart, a contrite spirit. What does he want from us? He wants truth on the inside, not expression on the outside. And he says in verse 14, here's the issue. And you ask why. Why won't God just accept what we've done? Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you've acted treacherously against her. He's speaking to men. You know why? Because in this society, women didn't have any rights. Women couldn't divorce their husbands. They couldn't leave the, covenants, uh, uh, the covenant of marriage. They couldn't testify in court. They couldn't be a witness. They had no power. And so the men could very easily just walk away from the relationship. And then the woman is left exposed and abandoned and helpless. This is the situation, by the way, that Ruth the Moabitess found herself in when she went with Naomi, her mother-in-law, back to Israel. When, by the way, uh, she sees one of her relatives and he takes his cloak and covers her with it, which was a sign of being like, hey girl, what do you say? Let's make this thing Facebook official. That's what's going on right there. And we're going to get a reference to it here. He says, you've acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't God make them one and give them a portion of spirit? What's the one seeking? Godly offspring. So watch yourselves carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice. You've taken this thing that's supposed to be justice, care, love, and covenant, and you have said, I am clothed not with righteousness, but with injustice. And the only thing that I can give to another now is injustice. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully, says the Lord, and do not act treacherously. This is the equivalent of God saying, when the boy comes over to date the daughter, I don't mind going back to prison. I've killed before, they didn't find the body, and I will kill again. 
Think carefully how you treat my daughter. This is what God is saying to us. Think carefully. You entered into this covenant relationship. Then you abandoned the covenant relationship. And why does God care? This is a, this is a, a popular question. Why does God care who I'm attracted to? Why does God care who I sleep with? Why does God care what I do with my own body? It's my body, it's my choice, and I should be able to do whatever I want. That's exactly what the Israelites are saying. And the reason that he cares is because he's God, and he knows how to secure human flourishing. He knows what we need. He knows what's best. He knows how to make the world an amazing, perfect paradise. That's what he wants for us. That's what he originally designed for us. We're the ones who broke it and who ruined it. And if you flip over to Romans chapter 1, you get the most popular passage in the New Testament for addressing homosexuality. Isn't that exciting? Imagine being me right now. But we're under authority. And we don't have the permission. I don't have permission to leave you uninformed about God's standards and expectations. You know why? Because if you go out on the highway today and you drive 140 miles an hour and the police officer pulls you over and you say, I'm sorry, officer, I didn't know what the speed limit was. He's not going to say, she's not going to say to you, oh, you didn't know? Well, in that case, it's fine. Here's the speed limit and then just let you go. No, they're going to take you to jail. That's way too fast. And ignorance about the truth does not allow you to get out of the consequences from violating it. It says in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 21, it says, For they, though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. This is the issue. Is God God or am I God? Or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their heart to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who's praised forever and ever. Amen. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They're filled with all unrighteousness. This is not just those who are sexually immoral. This is all who say God is not God. I can do what I want to do. They're filled with all unrighteousness. And how does all unrighteousness, how does that manifest itself in a person's life? Here's how it does. Evil, greed, and wickedness. They're full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boasters, uh, uh, excuse me, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, that makes the list senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. They become the cheerleaders of violating the covenant. 
Why does God care? The second reason, he wants the world to know who he is and the beauty and joy found in his covenant love. That's what he wants. The third reason is he wants the world to know his glory. And the most critical component to society for seeing his glory is the family. Seeing people love each other and keep working on it. Not everybody's supposed to get married. I already said that. You're not less than if you're single. If you're married, I would say the greatest gift that you can give to your family, the greatest gift that you can give to your kids, and the greatest contribution you can make to the world is to love your spouse. To love God first and to let that overflow in love for your spouse. Now, I want to say a few words before we wrap up. A word to those of you who have been divorced. I want to say that you're loved and you're not less than. And you don't have to walk with a cloak of shame. You don't have to live with a scarlet letter taped to your chest. We grieve the loss. We grieve brokenness. Sometimes the most painful experiences in my life, by the way, sometimes the most painful experiences in my life are the self-inflicted ones. The world's a broken world. And your sin is unique to you, but sin is not unique to you. And the abuses that you've been dealt and the difficulties that you had to face and when others have betrayed covenantal love with you, the, the nuanced experience of that is unique to you, but the experience of that is not unique. It's ubiquitous. We all experience it and all of us have failed. All of us, who are at least of a certain age, have failed in the biblical sexual ethic. Not a single person has lived a life that is sexually perfect and pure and perfectly glorifying to God except Jesus. We have all sinned and we have all fallen short of God's glory. And you don't have to live in endless shame not here anyway. You're loved and you're wanted and you're needed and your story is filled with pain and your story is filled with lessons learned and I hope your story is filled with hope and new life and joy and discovery that God has not abandoned his covenant with you regardless of the story of covenantal love in your own life experienced with other people. God has not abandoned his covenant love for you. And I want to say a word to those of you who are here who are same-sex attracted. The burden that you carry in the world today is particularly painful, especially as you try to follow Jesus. And I want you to know you don't have to carry it alone and you don't have to feel shame about those urges and those feelings and that attraction that lives inside of you. You don't need to be ashamed of that. Shame's going to drive you into hiding and in hiding and in isolation is where uh, sin has the ability to flourish more than anywhere else. It's one of the biggest reasons why we have gospel communities, which is what we call our small groups. It's, it, we, we, we have come to the place where we say that our gospel communities are not about cultivating discipleship. They're about cultivating friendship. Building trust with people so that you can say, here's how I'm struggling. And I just need some people to know about it and to care about it and to walk with me in it. Because here's the truth. If, if you're same-sex attracted or it's some other struggle, there's not a person alive who has the right words to say to you. 
Nobody can say to you, here's the magic thing that's going to relieve your suffering and that's going to resolve the pain and that's going to make the temptation flee from your presence. There's not a person alive who can say something like that. But what we need to know in those moments is that we're not in the foxhole alone. And the ministry of presence is the most potent act of ministry that we can perform. We know that because when Jesus was telling his disciples, I'm going away, they freaked out. We don't know where you're going. We don't know how to get there. We don't know what we're supposed to do in the meantime. And Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send my spirit and I will be with you always. Sometimes we just need to know we're not alone. Sometimes we just need to know it's not just me. And it's true that God's established the boundaries of the covenant. He's established the boundaries of the covenant that we're in with him. In all things, including sex, he's established the covenant. And the Bible makes it clear that marriage is between a man and a woman. And I'm more than happy to have that conversation with anybody. And I'm more than happy to study the scriptures with anybody who has a differing or a divergent opinion. And not aggressively. And not mean-spirited. But to open up God's word together and say, humbly, let's look at what God's word has to say. If you're interested in that path, I'm more than happy to walk it with you. The problem is that it's really easy to weaponize sin that we don't struggle with against people who do struggle with it. And when we do that, we become wholly unlike Jesus, who took the sin of the world and weaponized it against his own self and said, I'll carry not only the weight of that sin, I'll carry the weight of that consequence. So when we find a sin that is particularly repulsive to us, whatever it might be, the first thing that we should do is say, now I know a small taste of how God feels about me and my sin. And the second thing we should do is we should say, how do I want that God that I just spoke of, how do I want him to deal with me? Let me deal with this person in the same way. Some of you who struggle with that will never experience the joy of biblical covenant marriage because you feel no attraction to the opposite sex. And that is a real loss. And I will grieve it with you. And there are, among this, there are a million things, and this is a particularly painful one, that we say, that's not fair. And you know what? When we see injustice and when we feel brokenness and when we feel the tension of being in a world where we don't belong, we're supposed to cry out to our Heavenly Father and say, this is not how it's supposed to be. And you know what we get in response? Full agreement. This is not how it's supposed to be. And this is not how it will always be. Any sexual activity outside of that marriage relationship is sinful. Any attempt to alter the components of the marriage relationship is sinful. And everybody can take a breath. You know why? Because if you haven't violated that one, you violated another one. And the law is not a series of steps that brings us closer to God. Uh, the law is a tightrope stretched across the Grand Canyon. 
And if you're walking across that tightrope and you're like, well, I only broke it in one place. That's really all it takes, friend. It doesn't take more than one place. And, and if you made it 50 steps before you broke it and somebody else only made it one step before they broke it, you're both still dead. So it's not like on the way down, you're going to be going, you're such a loser. I can't believe what a wicked sinner you are. How humiliating that you fell where I didn't fall because somebody else made it 100 steps across. But only one person walked all the way across the tightrope, and that was Jesus. And so we look to him. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And what shame wants to do to you this morning, whether you violated that covenant, that biblical sexual ethic, by being promiscuous, by abandoning the covenant of your marriage, by, by uh, acting on any kind of sexual urges, same-sex attracted or opposite-sex attracted, whether you've been looking at porn, whatever it is that you've done, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Shame wants you to say, don't tell anybody, don't verbalize it, don't ever acknowledge it in any way. Because if you acknowledge it, then that thing, when it gets a little bit of sunlight, when it gets a little bit of daylight, it's going to blossom and flourish. It's all that anyone will ever know about you is your sin, which is absolutely true unless the gospel is true. And then all anybody should know about you is grace. That's supposed to be the story that we tell. And you can't tell the story of grace without the story of sin. You can't tell the story of mercy without the story of offense. You can't tell the story of forgiveness without the story of betrayal. We're good news people. We're good news people. And if you experience something different in this church, you come find me. And we will deal with it right away. And not in a mean-spirited way. Because that person needs good news too. They need to repent of that sin. They need to be forgiven. How do we get grace when our desires haven't changed? How are we supposed to get grace when our heart says, I still want something that is sinful. That's a really important question. And the answer, thankfully, is found in the Bible, which shouldn't be shocking at this point, but for me, sometimes still is. It's found in 1 John, in 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 8. It says this, If we say we have no sin... We are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, John says, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he, he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for my sin, and not only for your sin, and not only for our sin, but for the 
but, but also for those of the whole world. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and righteous. Your translation, or your translation might say faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Here's what that means. The Greek word for confession is homo legeo. Homo legeo, it means to say the same thing. And what does that mean? It means that when God says something is sin, I say that thing is sin. And when I confess this is sin and I turn from that sin, the just and righteous act of God in that moment what he must do because he's just and righteous is he must forgive me because he's already punished that sin and that sin's already been paid for and it's already been atoned for. And the Bible's written to help us not sin. But guess what? If you do sin, when you do sin, you're still not alone. You have an advocate. You have an advocate. And your advocate isn't a fellow sinner. Your advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Get this. This is how messed up Christianity is. In every other world religion, here's the story. There's divine and there's humanity. Humanity sins and rebels against divine and divine punishes humanity and creates a complicated system that includes offerings and sacrifices and worship. And when humanity gets the combination just right, then the divine is pleased with humanity once again. But the divine will often change the combination, thereby thwarting and frustrating humanity and causing them to claw harder back into the good graces of divine. But not Christianity. It's unique among all world religions in this one aspect. There's the divine and there's humanity. And humanity sins and rebels against the divine. And the divine says they're never going to be able to get back to us. So let's send ourselves. And the divine comes and makes all of the payment necessary to bring sinful humanity back into right relationship. And then when humanity rebels again, the divine stands in our place and advocates for us. It's the blood that we still cling to. It's the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus that we still cling to, even when our desires want to take us away. And when we can't feel any hope and we can't find any courage and we don't think we have the will to go on, we don't appeal to our own bootstraps and our will to be good. We appeal to Jesus and we say, I need help. We appeal to our brothers and sisters in Christ and say, I need somebody to just be with me, keep me from falling. Remind me of the truth when I do fall. Everybody who's here today, every single person who's here today is equally needy of the gospel. And the good news is that we all have equal access to it. Thanks again for listening to this week's sermon. We hope that you're encouraged as you go out to face life and follow Jesus. And don't forget that you can find out more information about our church, our beliefs, and what's happening at Red Hill by going to www.redhill.church. Thanks again.